Welcome to Tech Now with Tom Lyon, the podcast where host Tom Lyon talks with industry leaders about upcoming technology. Now here's Tom. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. My guest today is Dan Pitt, who's an old friend and a uh, technology executive of who wears many hats, but uh, one of the principal ones is at at MEF, which I which is the new name for the old Metro Ethernet Forum. How are you today, Dan? I'm doing great, Tom. Thank you. What can you tell us about MEF? So MEF is kind of my main hat. I do you know consulting through Palo Alto Innovation Advisors on this as well. Uh, so MEF was the Metro Ethernet Forum for 15 years, uh, and then about three years ago. Um, Change to just the MEF forum because our scope is long exceeded that of just carrier Ethernet or the Metro Ethernet technology, which back in 2001 and 2002 was was pretty radical for the telecom world to use Ethernet as a telecom technology. It's like that's a that's a crummy datacom technology that doesn't work for us. Right. Well, surprise is now a 90 billion dollar a year market, but it was a static service. So around three years ago, we made it into a dynamic and agile service and all the all the artifacts we had to put in to make it dynamic and agile and assured and orchestrated applied not just to layer two you know ethernet service but to all the other layers so we're doing stuff in layer one optical layer three ip and stuff that's sort of layer four to seven ish like security as a service as an overlay or underlay uh sorry sd-wan as a, as an overlay or underlay and also security as a service and then application services so i joined wow. MEF about uh not quite two years ago, uh, after spending, you know, almost six years with the Open Networking Foundation, sort of the, the first executive director from our, our public launch, uh, you know, promoting SDN as a notion. And so it's very much embedded into what we're doing in, in MEF, you know, so is NFV, disaggregation, open source, all these new things are, are tools for the telecom industry to modernize itself. Yeah, you were a real pioneer on the SDN front and, uh, you know, open flows gone crazy in the local area, and I assume you're leveraging similar things for the, the wide yeah. area. Yeah, we actually, in MEF, we're not religious about the technologies that are used in any, any of these abstracted components. We define the APIs and interfaces between these components, and then we let the, the telecom operators uh, and their ecosystem you know, decide what components make sense, and what technologies fit where. But I was at last week at the Layer 123 SDN NFE World Congress in The Hague, Netherlands, and we've been involved in that since they started in 2012. Um, and it gave me a chance to sort of measure how SDN is doing and how OpenFlow is doing, which is not a part of the name of the conference any longer. And there were actually some discussions about that. And it is it's marching along under the covers. So almost no one advertises this except for the studio video, video distribution industry. Hmm. But, you know, SDN and and, and V are pretty tightly coupled and they're going to be the foundation for the new 5g services yeah i was amazed to see at&t talking about you know white box cell routers and all this kind of thing where it's it's really softer defined all, all the way to the the radio now that's right and we got software defined radio and i mean just the whole no, notion of the radio access network it's just it's all software control the telecom industry is turning into a computing industry only they don't know it Right. Yeah. Well, it, software is eat, eating the world, right? And so, yeah, we like to talk about what we do as, you know, software-defined servers, but uh, <laughs> composable infrastructure had, had a more uh, distinctive ring to it. So that's what we're doing. Well, I'm a big fan of composability. I, I would like to see composability reach 
into the or help disaggregate the monolithic OSS and BSS of the telecom domain. Yeah. So that you can, you know, compose a service as you need it, when you need it, for the customer who needs it with just the right features by pulling stuff out of a library uh, for the direction yeah. they're yeah. needed. So does the MetForm uh, help define like self-service things for for end users to control? Uh, you know, we're we're strong advocates of automation and putting in the tools. So we have these, you know, east-west, as we call them, APIs from the customer into the BSS, into the OSS, okay. uh, and all of our APIs in this so-called LSO, Lifecycle Service Orchestration Reference Model, have these musical names. So something we have Cantata coming in from the customer portal. And this can all be automated to the extent to which the customer wishes. Yeah, that's cool. It's kind of the, I imagine... Uh, being able to dial up the bandwidth between two sites kind of when you need it, that'd be kind of cool. Absolutely, bandwidth and security and 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 even even path selection, you know, maybe not in this country, but in Europe, you see a lot of requirements for uh, data border control. Right. And it cannot leave the country. So you can't leave that to OSPF uh, or BGP. Okay. Uh, so you have to actually stipulate your paths and that can be part of the the intent-based instructions that go down into the network. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the internet is always having these situations where traffic ac accidentally gets routed to, you know, Iraq or someplace like that. It's like, whoops. Yeah, so many people rely on the internet, and increasingly so, but it's like, who runs it? You know, <laughs> Nobody yeah, knows. Yeah. Well, that's why it's an internet. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a collection. So one of, one of your other hats is as a, what's the member of an Anita Borg Institute? committee is that so yeah so i work with i'm a volunteer with the anita borg institute for women and technology so now we just call it anita.org which spells her name uh -huh. um, and my particular role is to chair the selection committee for the anita borg technical leadership award which is their top award they have six or seven awards and it's presented at the grace hopper conference um Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing, which we just held last month in Houston, and it's been growing like crazy. So we had 20,000 this year, you know, mostly wow. technical women, and uh, you know, a few percentage points of us men. It's a terrifically inspiring conference. I've been going for for years, and I was I was actually there on the day of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, and I felt like I was in a really good place to be for that day, surrounded by 20,000 technical women. Wow, well, that must have been awesome. It, it it always it just sort of takes your breath away. And I'm a guy, but the women who've never been to this before and are the only woman in their classes or one of two in their job, and they come and we filled the basketball arena for the opening plenary, and they look around and just all these women in you know tech, computer science, and, and engineering, and they've never experienced this before. And on the other side of the coin, the the few of us who are men who are there walk around with everybody looking at us and saying. Thinking, you know, what are you doing what here? What are you doing here? Yeah. And uh, that's how these women feel every day. It's good for us to feel it once, once in a while. Well, it's a little, a little bit like, you know, we must have felt in high school, you know, being nerds or something. And yeah. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> Don't bring me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of bringing you back, though, so we, we have a very interesting story about how, how we became friends. And uh, we were both at a... Uh, I think it was 1992 or 93 mm -hmm. at a meeting about ATM networking in, in Palo Alto. And dur during a break, we're hovering around a map of Palo Alto, and Dan is mentioning that he's he's about to move out there and was shopping for a house. 
and, and pointed to this area on the map, which was my house. And indeed, I was selling my house at that time. So it turns out we, we had our house, house had met him before I did. That's right. And uh, it got very funny from there. Uh, we, we spent four months looking for a house and his was, uh, Tom's yours is one of the first ones that we saw, but I couldn't afford it, but we loved it. So we kept looking and looking and nothing worked out well. And, um, and so I came back to thinking about that. And uh, so Tom and I started corresponding about it via email. This is 1992. Not a lot of people had email, but I was, I was pit at IBM.com. <laughs> <laughs> and then I left and joined HP in a similar email address. Um, and our realtors both worked at the same office of the same realtor company. And I sort of mentioned to mine that you know, I'd been in touch with you via email. And she said, you can't do that. You can't, you can't communicate with them. And I said, oh, no, it's only a little email. They had no idea right. what that meant. So um, Tom had bought a, uh, a lovely new house and another, you know, same actually neighborhood, Crescent Park in Palo Alto, and was about to move in. And, and I think we were your first offer after like four months on the market. It was a, it was a yeah. real dip in the market. Thank heavens for us. And our realtors did a great job in, in putting together a, an acceptable deal. And we are still in the house, Tom, and we love it. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a great location. I do, I do miss the location. A beautiful, it's a great house. We wanted a house that we wouldn't, I, we didn't want another starter house. I want a house our kids would grow up in. Yeah. And they grew up and they went to all the Palo Alto schools. And my son is back living with us. He went away for, for a year for college and he came back and now his girlfriend has just moved in. And we're going to have a multi-generational household for as long as we have to. You know, it's hard for young kids to afford houses, but it has served us really well and it's it's lovely. So thank you for vacating, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that dip in the market is what kind of what allowed me to buy into the house I'm in now. So we got, we got a steal on that. Yeah, so great. Yeah, and, but you know, but Tom and I knew each other from AAL five days, and yeah. Well, you you have a, a darker history at, at IBM too. Don't mention that those two words, yeah. token red rhymes rhymes with a broken thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. But but I, I actually ended up working on token ring at Sun and <laughs> at Epsilon as well. So yeah, yeah. that but was useful for a while. Things. But I was involved in IEEE 2.1, <clears throat> where we had the the two things about Ethernet that have survived to this day. One is the Mac service interface, and the other is the frame format. Everything else right. can change with technology improvement, but those things uh -huh. have survived yeah. the industry incredibly well. Yeah, it's amazing to think you could still interoperate between an AT&T Starland at one megabits and a 100 gigabit you know, thing. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure why you'd want to, but you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there's probably someone doing it. And then another hat you have. Oh, while we're actually, while we're still in Palo Alto, so, so that that house has become your home base for checking out all the Palo Alto restaurants, right? It has. You know, I'm so close to downtown, and I find myself going down all the time on foot or on bicycle. I actually don't have to use a car very much. That I started keeping track of restaurants because you know guests come in, we'd have conferences, where should we go to dinner, and I made lists. And it's now a website. It has been for ten years. It's a downtown Palo Alto restaurants dot com, yeah. and it's an unadvertised compendium of every eating place in downtown Palo Alto. Yeah. And when hey. I'm not traveling, I try to keep track of what opens and closes. Yeah, I was just going through it yesterday, so it was very interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, my, my wife and I are too lazy to go out these days. It's like DoorDash for everything, but uh, but it's still pretty handy. 
Well, we did renovate the kitchen finally, Tom, in our, in our house about three years okay. ago. Uh-huh. And now it's easy for two or three people to cook in there at the same time. So we don't go out much either. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, you know, my wine cellar has a very low corkage fee for meals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had a huge remodel on our house too. So that took a while, but it's, it's great now. So what's going on? What do you think is going on with the state of SDN and open flow and open daylight and all these things? So, you know, I'm kind of embedded in the telecom world, but also we're seeing enterprise IT change as they cloudify most of the, much of their business. Right. Um, and, you know, people really talk about open flow. It's under the covers, and they don't talk about SDN all that much anymore. But when they talk about virtualization and automation, um, for this transformation, the digital transformation that enterprises and, and others are going through, they're important ingredients under the, under the covers. And what I'm seeing, and probably what's clo- most closely related to drive scale, is that so much by now that you've separated forwarding and control, as we say in with SDN, the control and management and now orchestration uh, aren't running in boxes in the network; they're running in servers and the servers are put in clusters into data centers of varying sizes. And so the telecom operators now have the opportunity and and probably the obligation to implement their data centers with uh, the best technologies they they can. Those are coming out of the hyperscale architectures and OCP. So they're starting to learn the language of bare metal uh, and white boxes and uh, trying to figure out how they operate a data center and where, and that the where is a really interesting question because it it means a couple of dimensions. It can mean on my premises or in a cloud, somebody else's cloud, which right. is right. a stretch for for this industry to think about, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then the other question of where is how much is centralized and how much is distributed. We're seeing a whole lot of discussion now of MEC uh, multi edge computing or, you know, um, and these are smaller versions of data centers that are closer to the user um, that are used to not have to rely on all traffic going to some centralized place, which could be a bottleneck and the the WAN traffic could be expensive, but they're also essential for low latency services uh, where the edge is sort of the edge of the cloud, but it's very close geographically to the customer premises. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of been the case with content delivery networks for a long time, which have been a overlay on the telco. But you know, you have to point of presence and all of these local right. ISPs. But it's not just content anymore. Right. It's it, not just delivery of stuff. It's it's all of your a lot of many of your workloads. Uh, right, right. Especially very interactive or dynamic, especially machine to machine and IoT applications. Um, highly dynamic workloads. Right. With and there's no shame. Not just bounded latency variation, but bounded latency absolute. Right. right. And so now, now you have to deliver the compute to where it's needed, not just the content. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing, I, I don't know, it probably doesn't affect your architecture very much, but we're seeing a lot of discussion and experimentation with putting some server processing functions in the networking devices, you know, where you have switches and, and CPUs and occasionally, you know, NICs and things like that, um, typically at the edge or even maybe in the network where you need to do some kind of processing for, you know, real-time analysis, usually security related, but also traffic engineering related. Right. Uh, and you have this switch with some server functions in it. Yeah, this whole whole area of 
adding intelligence to devices. Of course, there's IoT, but I'm on a kick for this in the data center as well. You know, you want to disaggregate all the pieces that you have and add enough intelligence in them to communicate in smart ways. You know, not not to change their fundamental nature. You know, storage device is still a storage device, but now let it communicate with a you know, whatever protocols make sense and, you know, let it be easily configured with security and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that, that same kind of Internet of Things is going on everywhere, and it's really amazing to watch. Well, we've talked about, at least I've talked about, having the ideal case of a pool of resources, compute storage and networking, yeah. and now acceleration, uh, that you can compose uh, as before, we talked about composable infrastructure, but you can compose, you know, quite dynamically for the workloads that you have and their communication and, and, and storage needs. I haven't seen a lot of examples of it. I did see something very cool at OFC this past spring in uh, in San Diego. Um, and I hope to see it again, you know, next spring. Um, and it's partly for, from, from what I can tell, for reasons of cost, but it's also for reasons of application responsiveness. Uh-huh. Yeah, and most most of the important services have very strict SLAs. You have to deliver your content within a few milliseconds, or or your users go elsewhere. Yeah, that's right. So that's that's a huge driver for the industry. And with the telecom operators I talk to, they they are you know offering and having to offer you know advanced services that go beyond pure connectivity and being able to add this kind of processing or to collect information or to use and analyze information, that becomes very valuable for their for their enterprise customers. On know. the topic of acceleration, you know, I, I also have a consultancy I've had for a long time, Palo Alto Innovation Advisors. And one of the companies is, is actually doing an acceleration play. It's, uh, it's a PCI Express fabric, which there are different opinions about, uh, but they are having some really strong traction with customers for certain applications uh, where they can't afford the latency of Ethernet. So it's more a latency question than a cost question. Right, so right. it's one of these niche technologies that's you know, trying to find out where it is best best applied. That's a San Diego-based company. And, uh, Actually, I think I've, 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 I think I've talked to them because uh, our, our marketing company, Orion, works with them as well. That's called Giga.io. Giga.io, right, yeah. I had a chat with them about a year ago. Okay. It is pretty pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting, and you know, I I have to be careful not to fall in love with the technology, because and I'm mostly interested in what will serve customers and society and be commercially successful and viable. So I'm always looking for the so what behind it. I'm also an executive in residence at the Plug and Play Tech Center over here on Wolf Road. So once a week I go in here, I don't know, 15 startups pitch, and and I'm always thinking, well, that's cool, but so what? You know, who cares? Who who's going to benefit from this? What, what's that? Right. Right. Impact. Yeah, I think the I, I've been through quite a few startup pitches too, and and someone I I was with made one of the most relevant summaries of stuff. It's like, okay, that's that guy is a man on a mission, but is there a business? Right. Right. Yeah. So it's always an important important call. Yeah, and it's you know I some I see some that it looks like there's a business there, but it's not a business I want to be in. Right. You know, we're going to extract more money out of the healthcare system without improving health outcomes. Like, I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, I, I always claim the, the fundamental motivation of an engineer is to, to change the world, hopefully in a useful and good way. Right? For the better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've changed a lot of unintended ways. Yeah. 
because we usually don't don't understand the money part of it. But uh, well, even you know, I spent five years at Santa Clara University. This is a, a Catholic Jesuit university focused on social justice, um, and and I you know I would give some examples of like the cell phone and the remarkable things it has done for rural farmers in India. Just for example, created a market for these people and you know a living you know wage that they you know they earn is sort of entrepreneurs, agricultural entrepreneurs, and it's just turned a lot of, you know, millions of people's lives around. It's also been the best tool ever invented for drug dealers. Right, so. right. Yeah, that's the thing. Tools are, or tools are not inherently good or evil, right? But when SDN first came up, I was over in Germany for a conference in SDN and OpenFlow, and uh, we was, I was kind of hounded by, you know, is this going to uh, hurt net neutrality? Like you can use this as a tool to to help or hurt net neutrality, depending on your policy. Policy does not come out of the technology; it's orthogonal. Right, right. And unfortunately, technology often exacerbates whatever the word is uh, social problems, but it doesn't fix them. <laughs> Expose some, creates yeah. some, and exacerbates yeah. others. Yeah. Well, on that happy or sad note, uh, that's probably all all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Tom. It's good to see you again, as always. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. We welcome your feedback. And tell your friends to tune in. 